You know, missions is not a place. It's a mindset. Even more, it's a heart set. It's not something over there. It's something right where God has you today. It's not just in Madagascar. It's in Memphis, Louisville, inner cities, places around our country. Rick Donlin, our speaker tonight, is a family practice doc who works in domestic missions in inner-city Memphis. I've known Rick for many years, and I admire him tremendously for his leadership, for his expertise, for his innovation. People from Washington come down to Memphis to see what they're doing in the inner city there so they can duplicate that program across the country. The thing I admire the most about Rick is that he's a mentor. My dad used to say the greatest investment of a man or woman's life is to invest it in the lives of others. And Rick mentors young people. I know that for a fact because all three of my children and their spouses work with Rick. And he mentors them all the time, helping them to grow in their faith their sense of community, and have a passion not just there in the inner city, but for the whole world. So it's a real pleasure for me tonight, or this morning, almost feels like night, doesn't it? We've got a lot already this morning, to introduce Rick to you and hear what God has laid on his heart. Rick. Now, wait a minute. Normally, after you smoke crack, your mouth, tongue, numb, jaw what? gets numb, now, hold on, and your up. speech becomes to become slurred, and sometimes it's a stiff, broken no, because your jaw won't move. If you look at the first wave of disciples from where they were from, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And if you would say that today, you'd say, can anything good come out the hood? That hood in this story is Binghampton, an inner city section of Memphis that saw housing values drop in the 80s. And so, bears wrapped along a pole where someone was brutally murdered are a harsh symbol of what usually happens next. Drugs, poverty, crime. And as a generation passes, a sort of cultural barrier is created, a divide. Sides are determined simply by where you grew up. In my opinion, suburbs, they're afraid to actually get out and be with the other people just because they're in a room with people that wasn't born like they were. I'm living day to day. I mean, like, we have no utilities. Been like this since we moved here. But this neighborhood has went down a lot in the last, what, 10, 15 years? What's happening in this neighborhood is that a tide of individuals are moving from the outside in. Some are building homes, some teaching in the schools or starting clinics. The local Memphis newspaper called the trend re-neighboring. The question, where would Jesus live, sounds trite, but for those who felt the burden to respond honestly, the answer didn't come easy. It was more fearful for her, in some ways, I think, to move into an inner-city community in her hometown than to go overseas. Both of us, at that time, five children, were concerned about safety and risk and those sorts of things. Rick Donlin is a doctor who helped start Christ Community Clinic. 
After working in Binghamton for almost a decade, he sought out a friend for advice, a friend who had served with IMB and had lived in the Middle East and seen churches grow. But for Donlin, the greater challenge of the advice wasn't moving in, but staying. He tells the story. Our first clinic was in southwest Memphis, um, and at the time it was the, the most medically underserved part of Shelby County. We provide prenatal care, pediatric care, some specialty services. I do HIV medicine. We have several hundred patients with HIV that we care for. Our friend, um, his implication was pretty clear. Like, if you all want to reach this inner city community in Memphis, some of you at least are going to need to think about living in the community. Both of us, we had at that time five children. We were concerned about safety and risk and those sorts of things. And we, we did it nonetheless. We sold our house in the suburbs and we moved in. My 10-year-old had a birthday party three weeks ago, actually, and it was a Sunday afternoon. We were in the backyard, and about 35 feet away, just the other side of the fence, um, a couple of knuckleheads started shooting each other. There were probably 15 or 20 shots. They were in very close proximity. I had to lay on top of my 10-year-old, who was clearly frightened. But we, we, after we had that happen, we got together as a family, we thought about it, we talked about it, and I, I said, well, maybe we need to put a for sale sign in the front yard. And every one of my six kids said, no way, we're not going to do that, we're not moving, we love this neighborhood. And um, I know there are people who think that that's insane and that would be a reason to move, but in balance, my children have learned how to face risks, they understand why we're doing it. They're in public school in our community and are connected. They're multicultural. They know why mom and dad do what our family does, and they embrace it. We've got a few years, a few decades maybe, to make our mark, and we're all going to face God one day. And if something happens to my kids, um, I trusted my children to God. So I don't want to be on top of any more 10-year-olds, but we're not moving right now. As many seek to develop long-term relationships locally, many have found Binghamton as a sort of training ground and are buying one-way tickets to some of the toughest mission fields around the world. But whether staying locally or serving internationally, it's the same language, the same calling, where Jesus might live. If, if I were to give today's sermon, the title would be The Dangers of Missionary Service. And today we're going to talk about a story that's probably very familiar to, to many of us here. Traditional to wait till I'm finished to do that, I think. Um, just me and 2,500 of my closest friends. Um, thank you, David, for, for the introductions. Right now, I'm completely dependent on one of his kids, Jason Stevens, and my friend Peter Van Wyland here are going to make sure that the technology works. I'm a technology-dependent speaker, meaning if I don't have my pictures, um, it'll be a short session. So... Um, <laughs> Hopefully it will be less of me, on the. Uh, although I do want one of my kids to get a picture of me up on the gondola before I go off. But hopefully the, what we'll see is that we can start going to the slides, because the slides are everything. And the first slide is really the title of our talk. 
The first slide is really the title of our talk, (laughs) which is Die to Live and Live to Die, or Die on Stage. It's also possibly called that. (laughs) There it is. Okay, great. Um, I've heard some really tremendous plenary uh, speakers from this stage before. One of them, David Thompson, gave a speech called The Doctor Must Die, and um, it was an amazing speech. I want us in a minute to look at a passage from Matthew 25, but in the meantime, just very briefly, you saw pictures of our city. Uh, Vacation and Leisure magazine just had a survey and listed us again. We, Memphis always, we have good barbecue, they said, but for every other reason, you should stay away. So I have a message for them. Barbecue's kind of (laughs) overrated. Memphis is a tough place, but we love Memphis, all right? And I want to show you, this is courtesy of my friend Andrew Way, who's here. This next picture is the map that you saw, but um, now that's a demographic map. And I could tell you, I wouldn't be misleading you, that the blue dots represent places where there are terrible health disparities. I could tell you that the places where you see blue dots, that there are incredibly high rates of infant mortality, of school failure, of crime and unemployment. Um, this isn't Republicans and Democrats. Each one of the dots there represents 25 humans, and it happens in our city that the blue dots are black humans and the red dots are white humans. And that's the way our city is. Unfortunately, it's the way a lot of cities are. It happens in Memphis that the west part of the county is where the African-American population is and the east is where the Caucasian population. In other cities, it's different, but there's a divide. And there is disparity in health, and many of us, because we're separated from it, don't really see it. And it's turned out for us to be a way to grasp the part of Jesus' message about justice and about equity, about fairness, and the fact that that's what he's about and that's what his kingdom is about. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, the friend in the video that, that I was talking about is the guy who did the first plenary session last year. If you were, if you heard that session, throw a hand up. Yeah. If you haven't, I, I don't know if you can still get it on the website. It's one of the greatest talks I've ever heard. Chuck is a friend, and he really did sort of push us about 10 years ago in Memphis to think through some of the strategies that he's now codified in a book called Preach and Heal. Preach and Heal, which... Um, if you haven't seen, you really ought to look at, try to get a hold of. We had copies last year, and we don't have them this year, unfortunately. But Chuck said, as we mentioned, that you really ought to think about locating the neighborhood. And so we did that. That arrow points to the community that my family and I have been in, and many of us here today have been in for years. Let's see what we got next, Peter. Chuck's second most um, impressive point that he made with us was, you ought to think about using medicine as the tip of the spear. What he meant by that is his own work as, a, as an international mission board missionary in Kashmir, in a disputed province between India and, and Pakistan, was only possible because of, he was a physician and he took a healthcare team in there. And that healthcare is this amazing way to get to places where almost nobody else can go. And even as we were doing our inner city work, we were still doing more traditional mission trips, short-term trips like many of you have taken. And Chuck's challenge to us was take this valuable asset that you have and only use it in these tough places. He didn't mean, and I don't mean, that we shouldn't still be reaching out to other parts of the globe, but the parts of the world that you see in that box 
World A, the 1040 window, however you want to, the unengaged places, are where 2 billion people live who have largely not even heard the first part of the gospel, where there are not disciples, there are not churches, seminaries. There's not Jesus. So that's what we've been doing. This message is recorded, and we're living in an era of higher security, so I'm not going to say these people groups out loud, but you can see them. Over the last seven or eight years, these are the people groups that we've engaged, and we do actively train folks in the inner-city setting where we are in Memphis to go to some of these tough places. I'm going to show you some pictures. Again, I can't call anybody's name. Some of you know some of these families, but they're going to those locations Uh, some of the brightest, sharpest people that you would ever know, people that you would be proud to work with, people who take their young children and young families to these difficult places. I've been trying to make that case here um, at this conference for a number of years. I really only have one talk. It it started out being called From the Hood to the Hindu Kush, and I make up other names for it, try to get it under the radar of the conference planners, but... The the notion is the same psychopaths who will move into an inner city community, who will make their mother very uncomfortable when they do that, who will deal with limited resources, who will have to figure out cross-culturally how to talk to people that they don't really get and who don't get them, who will have to deal with fear. Those are the same people, those are the same skills that you need to pick up and do that work in an unengaged, unreached people group. So it's not either or. We don't stand here at the Louisville Conference and cheer for the world and then go to the CCHF Conference and cheer for the city. It's two sides of the same coin. If you want to get trained to go over there, there's no better place than a tough place in the United States to do it. This is an email I got today, I'm sorry, not today, but this week as I was preparing from one of the folks who was with us, lived on our street for three or four years, very sharp Vanderbilt trained nurse practitioner, and if I can read it from here, this is what she said. That's the people group that you can probably recognize, what I would say is probably, if not the hardest, one of the hardest people groups in the world. We surveyed to find the biggest health needs and began clinics in those neighborhoods. It's because of the health needs we're meeting that they are open to hearing our story, meaning their testimony, and his story, meaning the gospel. We are seeing first, second, and even third generations join our family. Missionaries speak for converts who then go make other converts who then go make other converts, multiplying converts because of the many people we're telling the story to. Healthcare missions that she learned, part of what she learned in the Memphis inner city is helping her reach one of the toughest people groups in the world. A team of people are doing it, and the Holy Spirit's doing it. The last thing that Chuck encourages us to do, which is really the wackiest for a lot of people, is to start doing house churches. And we don't really have time to talk about that, but this is my living room. And over the last seven years, that same neighborhood, we have six, six of those now. Remember, house churches are a little different than this. Little different, yeah. Um, my living room gets pretty stuffy at uh, 35 or 40 people, so um, that's why there's a number of them. But it's also training. In most of the places now where the gospel's got to go, you're not going to build First Baptist Church Kashmir, right? Unless you want it blowed up real good. <laughs> right? 
The church is going to spread when it happens in small groups, when meeting in homes and storefronts, when there are lay leaders, not necessarily pastors, not a lot of bricks and mortar, a lot of not, not a lot of salaries. The gospel moving through people groups, through small people groups, through households and other places. So, if you got a Bible on your iPhone or in your lap, let's get it out if you don't mind. Matthew 16, 13 through 28, we're going to try to deal with as much of this as we can. It's a familiar passage for most people. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Caesarea Philippi was uh, a place where there were a lot of Gentiles, where there were a lot of pagans. Uh, Jesus' disciples have come from Judea, where it's sort of like going from Jackson, Mississippi to New Orleans. Maybe, or maybe not. It's not like that. But um, a place where lots of people who are um, solidly Jewish and they've moved into an area as they're traveling where that's not the case. And Jesus has some time with his disciples and he asks them, you see me preaching and teaching. There's a movement going on here. What are people saying about me? Really, who do they say that I am? And so you've heard this answer. They replied. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. One thing that you, you don't want to run by here is that the people are very biblically literate. All right, they didn't need to be biblically literate to know who John the Baptist was. He was a contemporary. But these Jewish people are watching Jesus and what he does, and they're thinking, that, that kind of reminds me like when Elijah called down fire from heaven or fed people. That kind of like reminds me of when Jeremiah wept over Israel, the way Jesus sort of talks. They thought he was a prophet. He's, of course, more than that, but he's not less than that. When we're teaching chronological Bible stories in the neighborhood, there's always a sign, a hand sign for the part of the Bible that we're teaching, so creation. But this is my favorite one because I tend to be the, this is the one for the prophets. <laughs> it's the prophet saying, remember the Lord, you stinking sack of you know what. Right? Prophets speak from God to God's people. They're not evangelists. They're not trying to get the non-God people in. They'd be very bad at that, right? Jesus spoke like a prophet. And that's what the people, that's the most they could make of him. He's a prophet. He's speaking to us on behalf of God. And Jesus turns on him a little tighter. But what about you, my disciples? Who do you say that I am? Which is the question of questions. It's the ultimate question. It's the question if this is about missions that we're trying to get out to everybody. So they'll have a chance to answer that question one way or the other. So petulant, loud, abrasive Peter speaks up. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. Not by man, but my Father in heaven. This is a theme of this passage. I want you to think, you've got God stuff and you've got man stuff. And Jesus says, congratulations. The revelation of who I am comes to you from God himself. God himself just spoke that to you. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. 
we were just singing, I was wandering from the faith. That's my story. You wouldn't be a disciple right now, assuming that you are, unless God revealed who Jesus was to you. When we preach the gospel where it is, the people are only going to believe it if the Holy Spirit reveals who Jesus is to people, which gives us some relief, right? Peter, for a moment, by God himself, the Son, has said, God has spoken to you. Blessed are you. And I tell you, he goes on, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it or overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. My um, friend and co-worker Nathan Cook has preached a sermon. He says he stole it from Shane Claiborne, I think, but um, about the fact that Jesus says, The gates of hell or the gates of Hades won't prevail against this proclamation. The proclamation of Peter is that Jesus is the Messiah. That truth, Jesus says, is going to change the world. And even hell cannot stand against it. And Shane and Nathan, and I'm saying to you now, most of us sort of have the vision backwards. We think we come into church and it's a fortress where we pull up the drawbridge and we protect ourselves from the world. And that's the absolute opposite of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, we're the marauding, crazy warriors who are attacking the usurper, deceiver's gates. And they're not going to stand. We're going to take them. We're not going into our churches to hide and protect ourselves from the world. We're arming ourselves and we're going out, lunatic warriors. Hell can't stand against us. Do you believe it? I got an amen. In my house, you can't watch the Lord of the Rings movies until you read the books. So my 11-year-old just got through the third one. Do you like that? We have the literacy group over here. You read those books. Um, So Jimmy, who's 11, finished, and we watched. I sat down with him. We watched The Return of the King. I don't know if you remember the movie. I hope you do. Um, At the end, as they're trying to provide cover for Frodo, they basically get all the army together, and they march to the gates of Mordor itself. They take it to the enemy. These horrible, fearful gates. Sauron right there. And in that thing that ought to give you goosebumps, they put their heads together, and then Aragorn looks back. And he says, for Frodo. It could be a better line, I think, but <laughs> for Frodo. But then the cool slow-mo, and they crash the gates of hell. That's us, right? Gimli's right. Uh, and that's Tolkien really took a lot of liberty with Gimli for comic relief. He's slammed back with his pipe. What do we got here? Incredible, irresistible odds, certain death. All right, let's go. All right, turn now in the story. Turn for the serious. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Now you know who I am, gentlemen, disciples. You know that I'm the Messiah. Now you need to know why I'm here. Now you need to know where we're going. Now you need to know what's going to happen to me. Peter's back on stage. Peter took him aside. Jesus. Began to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine? It's a big fisherman. <laughs> never, Lord, Peter said, this shall never happen to you. Somebody told me a long time ago, two words that should ever be uttered by you is no, Lord. <laughs> Peter does it over and over again. Remember, he gets the vision and acts and God tells him to eat. No, Lord, no, Lord. No, Peter. <laughs> Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You hear it again? God, man. God, man. All right. We call this a crash and burn. Okay. He's flying high. The Son of God just told him he'd been blessed and that he'd had a revelation from God himself. And the next thing you know, he's being called Satan. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> okay. You're a stumbling block to me. That's what he calls Peter. You're something that's in my way. You're something that's blocking the path for me to do what I'm supposed to do. It's because your mind's in the wrong place, because you're thinking the wrong way. I'm with the literacy camp on the Bible. I was preparing for another one of the talks I'm going to give later today, and I was reading about biblical illiteracy. And um, there was this astonishing thing that almost a third of the incoming freshmen at Wheaton Wheaton, um, flunked basic Bible quiz. So this is a problem. Because the Wheaties are the best we got, right? (laughs) I didn't go to Wheaton. I can't afford to send my kids there either, but... Um, it's the sharpest of the sharp kids. Um, there's no hope for the LSU people. We're still, still trying to sound out the words, you know, from the children's Bible. But the Bible, we got to know the Bible, don't we? We've got to know the Bible. We've got to know the Bible. We've got to know the Bible. And if you get to know it, then you hear in it echoes and um, you hear stories over again. So this story in Matthew 16 actually sounds like an earlier story in Matthew. Some of you already thought about it, right? When when did Jesus otherwise call somebody Satan? Well, it was when it was Satan, right? (laughs) Yeah. Matthew 4, this is the temptation before Jesus begins his ministry. And one of the temptations, Satan says, or the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Okay. Peter is fundamentally echoing the very same temptation. What I call a shortcut. Okay. Jesus is the possessor of all the kingdoms of the earth and all their splendor. Is he not? Yes. We don't see it entirely now, but he will receive that. The enemy does his best lying when he has a little truth in there. But what he offered Jesus was a shortcut. You can have all that without having to die, without having to suffer, 
without having to fulfill your destiny of redemption through your blood and the cross. When Peter did it, he got the same retort. Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. You know that story. All right, so I want to try to speak a little in Peter's defense. Because, again, I think he knew his Bible well, even though he's a fisherman. And what I'd like to think is that when Peter understood that Jesus was the Messiah, he had certain Bible passages in in mind. I'm going to take a step down because my 46-year-old eyes can't read from there. This is from Psalm 72. I hope you read the Psalms. This is a messianic psalm about the Messiah, about the king. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountain will bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. That's absolutely true, isn't it? This is the king, a description of the king. Maybe that's what Peter had in his mind. Or this from Isaiah 42. Here, God says, is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness. He will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. This, too, is the truth. This is what the Messiah is. One more from Daniel. In my vision, Daniel said, at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds in heaven, of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Peter is the right-hand man of the king. You and I would have similar thoughts, too. We'd want to move right to that stuff, to the restoration of justice, to the removal of oppression, to the exaltation of the king, to the making of the nations, uh, rejoicing in that king. But that's taken a shortcut. Peter offered, expected, urged a shortcut. Here's a couple that Jesus thought about that we need to remember always. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Psalm 22, part of which he spoke from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent. Verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Peter and Satan wanted the glory of Jesus' reality and person to happen without the suffering and the death and the redemption. And it can't happen. It's impossible. The suggestion of it causes Jesus to rebuke his right-hand man. And here's the question for us today. Are we like Peter? Which is easier for me to say to you than, are we like Satan? Is the church, which is nothing more than a collective of us, looking for the glory and the goodness of the kingdom of God without understanding the reality of the suffering and death that has to happen? I really like the fact that I can be forgiven of my sins. That was very good news to me when I heard it for the first time. I love the promises of heaven. That death really doesn't have power. I love that. I love the thought of seeing and knowing the king forever. But I don't really want to talk or think much about what I've got to go through to get there. Because it's not just Jesus who has to suffer. That's what he says next. He said to his disciples, to you and me, for the centuries, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You and I can't take a shortcut either. We have to die to live. And there are things that are in our way with that. There are um, stumbling blocks. There are things in people who will say to us things that are that make a lot of sense. They're not the things of God. They're the things of the world. Some of them are easier to see than others. But the main message is this. You don't really have to die. You don't. You don't really have to die. Enough of that. He didn't really mean it. So sometimes that lie is very clear and obvious. And here's a few examples. Okay, I think for most of us we can see there's something not right about this. This is a message, unfortunately, that's being preached in a lot of places. That's gaining traction, especially in Africa and Latin America. That there's no death really at all. That by becoming a believer in Jesus, you automatically right here and now get heaven now. Get riches. God wants nothing more than to bless you. Not death, abundant life. That's what John 10.10 says, right? This is the pastor of the biggest church in America. His book's on the New York Times bestseller. Your best life now. Seven ways, what does he say? Seven ways, steps to living at your full potential. You don't have to die. You can have full potential. I'm the first one to, to hear about this, but I'll let you guys know, just my few friends here. Jesus has got a book coming out next week. It's called Come Die Now. <laughs> it's for your own dang good.
Some of it's a little more subtle, okay? I think sometimes about our churches. Not all our churches, but some of our churches. If the message that our church is saying to people to get them in the door is, hey, come on in. Um, learn about how to have good functioning families and how to have a good deal at work and to be fulfilled and to get some spiritual strengthening and and not mentioning the fact that we're supposed to die, then that can be a stumbling block. If our churches end up sort of pandering to us because we're selfish and our parachurch ministry is doing the same thing, then that message of, of the reality of our necessary death disappears or it gets sort of swept under. I used to think... My wife and I, just because we're self-righteous and proud, we thought, well, we, we only go to churches where they preach the Bible. Preach the Bible hard. They speak the scriptures, theology. And I love the Bible, and I love preaching and hearing good preaching. But I've been in, you've been in churches that preach the Bible where we're not told that we need to die. Where the fruit of those churches doesn't bring forth people who are willing to die to themselves and their own agendas. Every other week, this ought to be on the billboard of every church. I'm going to fill out my comment card tomorrow, and I'm going to write a little note to myself, please stay dead. Every day. anyone would come after me. He has to deny himself, take up his cross, her cross, and follow me. I wonder if you are willing to let the Holy Spirit answer this question right now. What does yourself want? What is it inside of you that has to be denied? What's the stronghold that you fight against? That Jesus is insisting, the Holy Spirit is insisting that you bring forward, that you surrender. What does yourself want? I, I put a list of some of the, my own as I thought about it. I wonder if some of yours are the same. Sometimes I think maybe men and women sometimes are a little different. When I asked my wife to um, move into the inner city at first, I think control was a big issue because that was like, whoa, 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 no control. Controlless. I have babies, a nest to keep, a s- mentally ill husband to attend to. <laughs> okay. God must not be speaking to you. You're nuts, right? What is it that we want to hold on to that prevents our submission and our surrender? You've got to deny yourself. You've got to die. You've got to. We don't have a choice. This is what Brother John Calvin said. Self-denial is very extensive and implies that we ought to give up our natural inclinations and part with all the affections of the flesh and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing, provided that God lives and reigns in us. Going back a little further to the 4th century, this is St. Jerome. St. Jerome wrote the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate translation. This is how he described it. Now do I begin to be a disciple 
and desire none of the things visible that I may find Jesus Christ. Let fire and cross and attacks of wild beasts, let wrenching of bones, cutting apart of limbs, crushing of the whole body, torture of the devil. Let all these come upon me, if only I may attain unto the joy which is in Christ. Jerome lived in a time uh, shortly after persecutions of Christians that involved those sorts of anatomic distortions. In 20 years since I was a medical student and mentoring and uh, meeting with and speaking with people of my own age and younger, um, I found that medical people especially, people in medicine, dentistry, nursing, we have special um, difficulties. Because in this country, to be a physician, to be a healthcare professional of some kind, a dentist, is like the American dream on steroids, isn't it? There's money and prestige, all these things that puff us up and make us think we're all that. And we begin to think that we don't have to die, that we can have one foot over here with Jesus, we love that, and one foot over here and the world being a cool whatever, living, I'm not living crazy big, but I'm living good. going to get Jesus's book. <laughs> Try to read it. We can't straddle the fence. You can't do it. Jesus tells us we can't do it. Right. I want to be careful here, right? But I think honestly having a shirt that says I heart mission trips is like having a shirt that says I heart heart knife fights. Okay? Nervous laughter. <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble. Yeah. This is what I mean. The Son of God, Jesus, has been shown to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. All right? He will have every tongue, tribe, nation, people worshiping him. He, has been, he will be given every nation as his inheritance. There is a usurping, lying evildoer who is bent on denying Jesus' glory and harming the souls of human beings. Missions properly understood, is aggressively taking territory from that liar and giving it to our king. You can't do it and heart it. You can do it and endure it. There is joy, deep joy in it sometimes, but it's not... We just sang about going to the ends of the earth and we said give us courage because you need courage. Any missionary out here, lots of them, will tell you that at any extended work, it's hard. Missions is not to make us feel good to heart. Okay, It's not honestly about us having a good experience when we go overseas. It's not about us really loving a particular culture that we visited. It's great if that happens. It's about the king and his glory and the nations and what he's doing and what he wants us to do. We don't bring our missions agenda to Jesus. We ask him to give us part of it, of his own It's the most serious business in the world. One last, I think, I don't know how many slides I have. Um, Sometimes people, church people, visit what we're doing in Memphis or sometimes when we're overseas. And um, 
some version of this will come out. Like, hey, that's really great that you all are called to that, but not everybody is, which is true, of course. Um, you know, not everybody's going to sell their house or not everybody's going to pick up and go there. So what we need to do for, for really the normal people, okay, is we need to do some allowable steps that you sort of help them get their toe in the water and maybe incrementally will bring them to a point of surrender and and that's how they'll get there. I don't think that's how it works. And in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure. For years, I've seen these things in Memphis, like the Urban Plunge, where they're going to bring suburban Christian people for a little while into inner city, and they'll do a little service project. And it makes all the sense in the world, like give them a little exposure, help them to meet some people. Maybe God will give them a vision. But I've never seen it really do that. I think it's primarily for this reason, this passage, like you just, you're not allowed to negotiate. He wants us to die. Not to do a workable deal that we can manage. We, we don't need to set low bars for people. We need to call people to die so they can live. This is the picture, not the little steps. Jump your tired butt off the ledge. A little clap over there. All right. Yeah. All right. That's what we were looking for. Yeah. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life from me will find it. And this is his promise to you and me. And it's a true promise. If you're willing to surrender your own narrow, provincial, short view of what you think you should do or what you could do for God, if you will be willing to die, to offer yourself, then Jesus will replace that with himself. John 14:21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, And I too will love him and show myself to him. All you get when you give up your little dreams are the king is the king of the universe. All you gotta do to really live is die to what you think you want. It's not enough. It's not going to satisfy. It's not real. It's not really real. Don't negotiate. You know what I mean, don't you? Uh, we do it too. We, when we moved into the neighborhood at first, we said, all right, we're, we're going to be brave, Lord, and we're going to move into the neighborhood, but we're not going to put our kids in that public school because you would never ask us to do that. Okay, here we go. We're off. And... I'm not implying that everybody should do that sort of thing, but it was a, it was an attempt to negotiate with God for us. Four years ago, after praying and thinking about it, we did put our kids in the school. It's two blocks from our house. And after living in the neighborhood for seven or eight years, after working in the neighborhood for longer than that, finally, after we did that, did we start to get invited to birthday parties and having kids over sleepovers and being invited to that. Like, that's when we started to really become more deeply involved in our community. And it's enriched us.
But I wasn't willing to negotiate that for a time, to surrender that for a time. What's your deal? This is really embarrassing for me to say, but what we need to do is shut our fat mouths and learn to listen. He promised, if we're his sheep, we'll learn to hear his voice, didn't he? That that Bible's there, the Holy Spirit's there. If we're willing to, even scared, to submit and die, then he'll start to speak to us. In our obedience, he'll show us. As we stumble along more obediently, he speaks more clearly to us, directs us. And we begin to see how silly we were and how small our dreams were and how great he is, how satisfying he is, and the work that he calls us to is. Okay. Jesus finishes the passage with um, a little bit of warning, really more than a little bit of warning. He says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Whatever it is, it's not worth it, is it? My wife had a baby last week. Now you can clap. Um, It's our seventh, because we're freakish about that. Um, I really am almost 47 years old. I was holding that little child... And doing the math, a little girl, beautiful girl. I'll be 65 when she's graduating from high school. So the joke is, Daddy, just squeeze my hand if you can hear me. (laughs) I'm already almost 50, okay? I promised young people out there like 32 seconds ago I was 25. I was, okay? You don't want to get further down the line and have compromised away your possibility for joy and usefulness. You don't want to regret 15, 20, 25 years from now that you weren't as obedient as you really should have been, that you didn't cast off your own agenda, stop trying to bargain with God and surrendered, begged for him to teach you what to do. Nothing you gain, even being American healthcare workers, is worth it. It's just a dumb exchange. So, those are the visual images. And I want to talk to you briefly, and I know that lunch awaits us, but be patient with me. God spoke to me last night. He told me that you had to stay in here till I was done. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Lord. <laughs> if we die so we can live, then... As paradoxically weird as it sounds, we get to live to die. Okay, And I want to go back to our friend Peter, because he really did eventually get it. You remember the rest of the story. They did go to Jerusalem. All the things that Jesus said were going to happen did happen. And when Peter really needed to stand up and be the guy, when he said he was going to be the guy, he wasn't the guy. At the Last Supper, I'll die with you. I'll go to prison with you. In Gethsemane, he's sleeping. And when confronted by a woman at the gate, he denies Jesus, as Jesus told him he would. 
Jesus was resurrected. And in John 21, the Gospel of John 21, there's the, um, oh, I get to meet Jesus now after that uh, three times thing. And, of course, Jesus is gracious to him. Simon Peter, do you love me three times? Yes, you know I love you. Right. And he reinstates, graciously reinstates Peter like he does us, right? But he tells Peter about Peter's future. He says, I tell you the truth, Peter. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And the tradition you probably know is that Peter was crucified upside down. That's how he died. Before that happened, he had 50 years of ministry. And we have two books, two epistles in the New Testament that he authored, First and Second Peter. And probably the Gospel of Mark was Peter's influence on the author, Mark. The main theme, one of the main things of the epistle of First Peter shouldn't surprise you. It's suffering. This is two quick excerpts from a book full of passages about suffering. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, get this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. From the fourth chapter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We're the ones living in the backwards world. Okay, Across the world right now, there are thousands, tens of thousands, millions of Christian people who are suffering because of their faith. In the history of the church, it's always grown the most when the persecution was the hardest and the hottest. We're in Disneyland. We shouldn't think it strange if we suffer, but we would. Peter's message to us, Jesus' message to us, the Apostle Paul's message to us in the New Testament is, if you're really a disciple of Jesus... One of the blessings of that is you get to participate in his suffering, that in a strange, really understandable way, ununderstandable way, our suffering and difficulty is a participation in Jesus' redemption of the world. You can't get to the glory without the suffering. We want to believe that you can, but you can't. Romans 8, for we're sons of God, for sons and heirs, co-heirs, no, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, that we also might share in his glory. I just butchered that passage, I'm sorry. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, Paul says in Philippians, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Is there a place in the American church for that message? I loved football when I was a kid. My 16-year-old son here is in the front row. He's bigger than I was when I was 16. He's stronger than I was. He's faster a little than I was. So I really wanted him to play football, like those North Carolina people we heard about last night. 
Okay. Um, he won up to me this year, refused to play football, but he's playing rugby. Yeah. You didn't clap for that, Jack. It's because of the shorts? What? The... So I'm talking with my wife. I'm saying, I don't know. I, you know, I, don't, I don't want him to play rugby. I, people get really hurt bad in rugby. She's like, well, you're an idiot. Which she says that a lot. Um, she says, you played football. You got hurt. And I did. I, got, I have hardware in my elbow. I shattered my elbow. I had to have it reconstructed. I didn't care about that. Okay? I loved football. He loves rugby. He's not going to be detoured because he might get injured. If you play those sports, you understand, don't you, that sooner or later you likely will get injured. But the sport is so great that you do it. Okay? It's all the more true if you really want to be a missionary. You can't play missionary without getting injured. There are people in this room who are injured. There are people here I've spoken with, I know, who've been shot at, who felt, almost everybody, depression and alienation, a separation from their families. There are kids in this room who didn't live with their parents for years at a time because of missionary service. If we're going to do this joyfully, there will be injuries. There'll be times where some of our best players are going to be out of the game and have to be doctored up and put back in the game. We have to understand it's part of the game. You can't play missionary without expecting to be injured. And those of you who are injured are going to get better. And your injuries, again, are a participation in the suffering of Jesus. I just don't know if we can preach that in America. There's a couple of books that are trying to dig into this. I've read them both. I'm not sure I can recommend them wholeheartedly, but they at least get this point across. There should be more to our faith than a um, milk toast, pew-sitting, bland Christianity. That that part of us that longs to engage in something bigger and greater than ourselves is real and legitimate. I don't think the solution is to watch a lot of Mel Gibson movies or whatever, okay? But we've got plenty of action for anybody who's interested in being wild at heart or being a barbarian. Let's tap into that desire and challenge people to embrace New Orleans South Los Angeles, Afghanistan, difficult places where we can be part of God's great work in the earth, where we can pour ourselves out for something ultimately greater and bigger than ourselves. He is going to come in his glory. He will reward each person according to what he's done. Don't you want to be the guy with five talents who came up with ten? Don't you? They're his talents, by the way, Mr. Smarty Pants Doctor or nurse or dentist or whatever we are. He gave those to us. 
And our job is to go at once quickly and put them to work so that when he returns, we have something to give to him. This is the last slide. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. This is Peter again. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. If you will be patient with me for about four more minutes, I want to show you um, a short video about some martyrs over the last few years. That could have be a much longer presentation than it's going to be, but um, it's about four and a half, five minutes, and then after that I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we'll be off to lunch. Let's see if we can get this movie going. us the courage to obey the truth of Jesus, that to be united with him means that we have to die with him, that we, Jesus, have to be united with you in your death so that we can be united with you in your resurrection. I pray that spirit would move in us to give us the courage to surrender our hearts to you and that you would raise us up and prepare us to give you the glory that you deserve. And we thank you for the examples of people who loved you enough to lose their lives for Jesus, your sake and the sake of the gospel. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>